0: chapter sixteen of the gladstone colony an unwritten chapter of australian history by james francis hogan this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by timothy ferguson from the mass of speeches pronouncements and writings of mr gladstone on colonial affairs i select one utterance for separate and particular notice inasmuch so as it is the most striking and suggestive The most elaborate and eloquent the most comprehensive and closely reasoned of all his addresses on the relations between the mother country and her daughter lands beyond the seas it is his speech on the second reading of the new zealand government bill in the house of commons on the twenty first of may eighteen fifty two on that occasion mr gladstone formulated what he conceived to be the true principles of colonization new zealand was a colony in which mr gladstone would naturally feel a warm personal interest His relative by marriage lord Lyttelton, was one of the founders of the new zealand province of canterbury and amongst the canterbury pilgrims as they were known in local history or pioneer settlers were several of mr gladstone's early friends and acquaintances moreover the first anglican bishop of new zealand dr george augustus selwyn was mr gladstone's closest companion at eton and an intimate friend in little life mr gladstone maintained correspondence with his old friends amongst the canterbury pilgrims notably the honourable j e fitzgerald who became the first premier of new zealand the reading of a remarkable letter from this gentleman constituted a dramatic episode in the speech of mr gladstone on the second reading of the home rule bill in eighteen ninety three at the outset of his speech on the new zealand government bill forty five years ago mr gladstone said he was not aware of a single case of a colony dealt with by recent legislation in which a just and what he might call for sake of precision a normal relation between the colony and the mother country had been arrived at by the term normal relation he did not mean a relation founded upon the speculations of philosophers or economists alone but he meant a relation which had been developed in the world of actual life and which with regard to its leading outlines and all its essential features was the old relation that in former times although it was the custom to ridicule those times as having been comparatively unenlightened, subsisted between the mother country and the North American colonies. The prevalent conception of a colony, as it appeared to him, was this. It was regarded as something which had its centre of life in an executive government. The establishment of a colony was viewed as something which was to take effect by legislative enactments, or by the executive power of the Crown, or by the funds of the people of England. This administrative establishment, according to the present colonial system, was the root and trunk around which, by degrees, a population was to grow, under which, by degrees, that population was, according to a modern, and in this case most unhappy phrase, to be trained for freedom, and to which, in course of time, some modicum of free institutions was to be granted. That, he thought, was a true description of the manner in which, and of the idea under which, The foundation of the modern british colonies had been ordinarily conducted now he conceived that a fundamental difference prevailed between the colonial policy pursued during recent years and the policy pursued in the other departments of the state in the home department the financial arrangements of the country the foreign office certain leading principles were continuously carried out and upon these leading principles there was a general concurrence of opinion so that for example no person ever seriously proposed to alter the fundamental principles upon which the foreign policy of the country had been conducted by a long succession of ministers but that which he thought required still more and more to be presented to the mind of the house and of the people of england until it became with them a living and a practical conviction was this proposition that in the policy they had pursued in the foundation of colonies He spoke of free and planted colonies not military posts or colonies whose social relations were disturbed by questions of race they had proceeded on principles fundamentally wrong and that the acts introduced and passed by the imperial parliament for the purpose of raising by slow and reluctant degrees the structure of freedom in those colonies were not so much recognitions of a right principle as modifications qualifications and restraints imposed upon a wrong principle Now, what was this right principle of colonisation to which he referred? It might, in his view, be enunciated in one word, or at least one phrase, to which he would presently come. Their ancestors, two hundred years ago, when they proceeded to found colonies, did not do it by coming down to the House of Commons with an estimate prepared, and asking so many thousands a year for a governor, a judge, an assistant judge, a colonial secretary, and a large apparatus of minor officers. What they did was this. They collected together a body of free men, destined to found a free state in another hemisphere, upon principles of freedom, analogous to those of the parent state, which should grow up by a principle of increase intrinsic to itself, and enjoying that freedom, under the shelter from foreign aggression from civilised powers, which the imperial power of England was to afford them, should, in process of time, propagate the language, manners, institutions and religion of the English nation in distant quarters of the globe but it was not on artificial support from home that these colonies leaned and the consequence was that they advanced with a rapidity which considering the undeveloped state of communications and of commerce at the time was little less than miraculous that was the consequence to them and the consequence to the mother country was this the home exchequer was never troubled with pecuniary charges for their maintenance on the contrary they were ever ready to assist england in time of war and instead of being called on to send regiments service companies and he knew not what else besides maintain the domestic police of those colonies and keep the peace for them against unruly members of their own communities or against savage tribes upon their borders such was their admiration of freedom and such their profitable use of it that not only did they not ask for regiments and service companies or petition for means to keep the peace but they held it as a grievance if england attempted to impose upon them her little standing armies and they considered that having been educated in english habits and ideas they were perfectly competent to follow out for themselves the paths in which these habits and ideas conducted them such was the then state of things departing from that scheme of policy in later days they had implanted a principle if not absolute yet of comparative feebleness in their distant settlements they had brought upon themselves enormous expense and By depriving their distant colonies of the fullness of political freedom, they had deprived them of the greatest attraction that could possibly be held out to the best part of the population to emigrate, because Englishmen did not love to emigrate to countries where they could not enjoy the political franchises which they enjoyed at home, and where the regulation of their interests would be committed to the hands of a government which, however mild and equitable, must still be called in principle despotic whatever might be said as to despotism and he was not disposed to take an over-severe view of it where it was adapted to the habits and social conditions of a country yet as regards free-born englishmen such a system was most monstrous and irrational and the consequence had been that there was a subject of complaint present and familiar to them all namely the great difficulty in getting the superior classes of the community to emigrate for the high-minded well-educated men who would have been themselves the centres of a valuable social influence had been reluctant to leave the shores of england because they were unwilling to forfeit the advantages of a state of high civilization and to incur a certain deprivation of the great bulk of their political liberties and thus their modern colonists instead of remaining as in former times in continuous and hereditary possession of their liberties after quitting the mother country instead of keeping and handing them on as the irregular and unquestioned heritage of their children in another hemisphere, went out to Australia or New Zealand to be deprived of those liberties, and then, perhaps, after fifteen, twenty or thirty years waiting, to have a portion given back to them with great and magnificent language about the liberality of the imperial parliament in conceding free institutions during all that time they were condemned to hear the whole of the miserable jargon about training them for free institutions and fitting them for the privileges thus conferred whereas in point of fact so far from thus training and fitting them every year during which they were kept out of the possession and the familiar use of such institutions and retained under the administration of a despotic government rendered them less fit for free institutions and the consequence was that when free institutions were at length introduced great embarrassments ensued liberty came as a novelty its working was something strange and unknown attended with hazard uncertainty and excitement and thus inconvenient or disastrous consequences were brought about which might have been avoided by following that which in this case no one need be ashamed of holding up to commendation as the wisdom of their ancestors and walking in the path they had struck out for the guidance of future generations Let the people sent out to colonise a distant land take root unmolested in their new ground, as the seed of a future community, as the natural and living centre which population was to grow. And instead of training them for free institutions, let it be remembered that the best training they could have was the training they had already received before quitting the shores of England, and while they were still British citizens. Let them carry their freedoms with them, even as they carried their agricultural implements or anything else necessary to establish them in their new abodes so let them hold it for themselves and so let them transmit it to their children that was the true secret of subduing the difficulties of colonisation in propagating these opinions he did not rest upon the speculations of philosophers and economists he rested upon the facts of history the system which he recommended and which he was convinced would gain ground from year to year in the feelings and convictions of the country was the very same system in the main as that on which the whole of the great and wonderful operation in colonising north america was conducted the system which edmund burke studied examined and comprehended from top to bottom and which he described in his great speech on american taxation when he warned the imperial parliament against the erroneous and destructive consequences of attempting to establish administrative power over their distant dependencies or to extract from them some miserable and contemptible pecuniary benefit instead of seeing that the great interest and purpose of England in colonising was the multiplication of her race, that her policy was to trust to the multiplication of her race for the propagation of her institutions, and that whatever course of legislation tended most to the rapid expansion of population and power in her colonies necessarily tended most to enhance the reflected benefits that she was to derive from their foundation. That sound colonial policy reached its climax in what might be called tory times although they were times immediately preceding the invention of the now familiar political designations in sixteen sixty two the charter of rhode island was granted it was the most remarkable of all the early charters for its enlarged and liberal spirit yet in its general character it was akin to the rest of the charters under which the infant settlements of new england throve and prospered at the present day it was considered a monstrous idea that colonies should have a free local jurisdiction for local purposes it was not considered safe to allow colonies to pass at their own discretion a rule relating to the making of a road the deepening of a harbour or any local purpose so that an act of this kind after passing a colonial legislature nay even after receiving the governor's assent was not secure from reversal but was still as it were in a state of suspended existence for two years and upwards it was remitted to england considered in england and again sent to the colonies and thus until the news was received there its fate was uncertain in point of fact a period of nearly three years might elapse in the distant colonies between their final decision on local questions the only criterion of fitness in this case that was worth a moment's attention and their final knowledge whether the decision was to take effect that was the state in which they were placed and the way in which their affairs were managed he should like to know what the feelings temper and humour of the english people at home would be if this were the mode of dealing with laws passed by them on subjects which they understood say for instance an act on the construction of a great western railroad or other similar purpose if such an act passed on their own knowledge of the circumstances and exigencies of the case were to be transmitted to another quarter of the world and there kept by somebody in an office for two years while some person or persons unknown were deliberating upon its fate Yet that was the system under which, in this age of freedom and enlightenment, they were content that their colonies should subsist. The old idea of a colony might be represented, as he had said at the beginning of his remarks, by a single phrase. It was, in fact, the idea of a municipal corporation. Now, it would be useful to consider the sense attached to that phrase. In the departure from it was to be found the key of the alteration of their colonial policy from the old model, they did not treat their municipalities with the same system of misplaced absolutism that they applied to their colonies. They placed their municipalities under the restraint of the general law of the land, but for purposes properly local they were endowed with absolute freedom. The bylaws of Liverpool or of Manchester, places counting their population by hundreds on hundreds of thousands, would not sent to the Secretary of the Home Department to be kept for two years, that he might consider whether they were to be carried into effect or not but they went into operation at once would it be possible for them by any strain of imagination to realise to themselves what the condition of such municipalities would be if that were not so such a system would seem to them fitter for turkey than for england the colonial system of their ancestors was well considered and was founded on the dictates of political justice the colonies were subjected on one hand to the general restraints of the law of england and again according to the language of their charters they were to have their own laws as near as might be agreeable to the laws of england whilst in other respects they were for all practical purposes absolutely and entirely free furthermore he would say that the degenerate and degrading ideas they now had of retaining the substance of colonial patronage partly and still more the name in the home country for the supposed benefit of ministers or influence of the crown were totally foreign to the notions of their ancestors six generations ago the colonies at that time on the general basis of municipal corporations were the possessors of their own soil they were for all purposes of police except that of conflict with civilized powers the defenders of their own frontiers they were the bearers of their own charges they were the electors of their own officers and they were the makers of their own laws every one of those salutary principles had been reversed within the last seventy years they now retained at home the management of and property in colonial lands they had magnificent sums figuring on their estimates for the ordinary expenses of colonial governments instead of allowing these governments to bear their own expenses instead of allowing the colonies to judge what were the measures best adapted to secure their peaceful relations with the aboriginal tribes they were told you must not meddle with the relations between yourselves and the natives that is a matter for the imperial parliament a minister sitting in downing street determined how the local relations between the inhabitants of a colony and the aboriginal tribes were to be settled in every point down to the minutest detail nay even their strictly internal police imperial troops were often called upon to maintain the idea of their electing their own officers was regarded as revolutionary in the extreme if not invading the royal supremacy it was something almost as bad dismembering the empire and as to making their own laws upon local affairs without home interference or control that was really an innovation so opposed to all ideas of imperial policy that he thought his honourable friend the member for southwark sir william molesworth was the first man in the house bold enough to propose it thus in fact the principles on which colonial administration was once conducted had been precisely reversed the colonies had come to be looked upon as being not municipalities endowed with local freedom but petty states if the fundamental idea of their forefathers had been adhered to that colonies were municipal bodies founded within the shadow and cincture of the imperial power of england that having imposed on them such positive restraints as were thought necessary they were left free in everything else all those principles instead of having been reversed would have survived in full vigour millions would have been saved to the imperial exchequer and something far more important would have been done by planting societies more worthy by fire of the source from which they sprang for no man could read the history of the great american revolution without seeing that one hundred years ago the colonies such as they were with the institutions they then possessed and the political relations in which they then stood to the mother country bred and reared men of mental stature and power such as far surpassed anything that colonial life was now commonly considered to be capable of producing the charter of rhode island was on the whole the best and most perfect exhibition of the ancient maxims of colonisation its constitution consisted of three orders a governor a body of assistants and a body of freemen the freemen as it was anticipated in the charter that they would become more numerous were to meet by representation and thus in these elected freemen with a distinct order of assistance a principle was laid down the principle of the double chamber for legislation which had stood the storm of the american revolution and the strain of all subsequent political vicissitudes and which at present subsisted with undiminished vigour in every single state of the american union but further while the first governor was named in the charter and was to hold office for a year his successors were to be appointed by the free voice of the colonists and doubtless to many it would appear astonishing that that power should have been conceded in sixteen sixty-two when not merely the warmth but the fever of royalism was at its height in england They were not only to elect their own government, but to make their own laws, subject to no other restraint in the world, except that, as far as circumstances would permit, such laws would not be contrarious, but agreeable to the laws of England. They were to appoint their own officers and judges. They were to constitute their own courts of justice. They were to arm, embody and march their own force for self-defence, and appoint its commanders. They were to be the possessors of their own soil, and lastly, they were to be the bearers of their own charges." It might be asked what security was taken for their good behaviour to others. The security taken, whether perfect or not, was certainly as perfect as any more recent policy had furnished. It was provided that in the event of their offending any prince or power in alliance with the Crown of England, they should either be bound to make restitution to the satisfaction of the Crown, or else, in the words of the Charter, they, quote, shall be put out of their allegiance and protection, now two centuries had passed and had produced many changes in the character of mankind and he would not say that in all points which might now be in debate the rhode island charter ought to be implicitly and blindly imitated but this he would say that looking to the constitutions given of late years to the colonies the acts they had passed the difficulties that had followed the millions paid from the imperial exchequer for the suppression of insurrections and for the maintenance of wars with savages The worrying processes to which colonists had been subjected, the complaints on all sides of the deteriorated tone of society in many of the dependencies, the reluctance, once universal and still somewhat prevalent, of educated and superior men to cast their lot and make their home in the colonies, noticing all this, and remembering that two hundred years ago a system conceived in another spirit was carried out by their forefathers, they surely could not draw the comparison." He should rather say the contrast without a blush upon their faces having thus reviewed the general aspects of colonial policy mr gladstone proceeded to address himself to the particular bill before the house for the better government of new zealand on the whole the bill was in his opinion creditable to her majesty's government not because it went back to the system generally represented by the rhode island charter but because it indicated a real intention to approximate to that system and conceded a larger measure of freedom than had hitherto been given under parliamentary enactment to any of the colonies his right honourable friend the member for Southwark, had complained of the bill as recognising too much the political existence of the local settlements and had suggested that it should be left to the central legislature to create local political authorities according to the dictates of expediency on the contrary he must say notwithstanding his respect for the authority of sir william molesworth And general concurrence in the views of his honourable friend on colonial policy that he thought the recognition of these local settlements was one of the most excellent features of the bill one of the characteristics of modern legislation as far as the colonies were concerned had been its arbitrary character they in the imperial parliament had endeavoured to draw lines for themselves instead of following those which nature and subsisting circumstances had marked out for them it was in his opinion A mistake to suppose that a large amount of population was required to constitute a self-governing political society the right honorable gentleman the secretary for the colonies had said here are six settlements the inhabitants of which are united by proximity to one another by common pursuits and relations in a great degree by common ideas and a common industry and trade but generally separated from one another by wide intervals of space well there was if he might so call it the social unit and the right honourable gentleman had recognised it and had departed from the modern traditions of colonial policy by granting a considerable share of political power to those small communities working independently one of the other in this arrangement he was glad to find a protest against those attempts to centralise by law where there was no sufficient attraction to a natural centre which could only produce weakness and dissatisfaction when he considered how well an opposite system had worked in north america When he considered how much of the character of the union and its stability depended on the strict division into states and the rigid maintenance of their separate authority and jurisdiction he did not hesitate to say that the recognition of the small communities in new zealand which would have a substantive political existence of their own while at the same time they were associated together for other more general purposes was in his view one of the fundamental merits of the bill and promised nay constituted a real advance in the spirit of british colonial policy he came now to the passing of laws and observed with satisfaction that the right honourable gentleman had introduced the thin end of the wedge although it was a very thin end indeed to relax and finally as he hoped to break up the present system it was now for the first time proposed by a minister that bills might be passed by a colonial legislature and might finally pass into law without being subject to what was termed the veto at home the district legislatures of new zealand were to be empowered to make their own laws upon all subjects with certain specified exceptions these acts were to be liable to veto only from the governor of new zealand and although an unduly prolonged period of time was assigned him for the exercise of that power yet in principle the concession was important for if that officer should not think fit these measures would never be heard of in downing street as subjects for deliberation at all now this was a matter in which much care and consideration were requisite and the ground had to be carefully measured and ascertained before going to the extreme length which on general principles might be thought desirable but keeping those principles in view he thanked the right honourable gentleman for the qualified recognition of them by the provisions of the bill another valuable feature of the measure was the arrangement proposed with regard to the composition of the smaller or district legislatures here again the right honourable gentleman had had the courage to burst the bonds of another most mischievous modern superstition he meant the superstition which prevailed that a certain number of nominees should be introduced into the legislative constitution of the colonies in order to maintain what was called the just influence of the crown the right honourable gentleman had provided that in the district legislatures there should be only one house or chamber this he so far regretted that he would have preferred a plan based upon the old distribution into the two orders of assistants and freemen but as there was to be only one chamber he was heartily glad that there were to be no nominees in it no crown influence was to be cherished by such spurious means election and election only was to prevail and the secretary of state had delivered himself and them from the idea which had sat upon them in former times like a nightmare that a colonial constitution could not work without an infusion of nominated members a device that so far as he could perceive had no purpose except that of sowing and perpetuating dissension the right honourable gentleman had moreover made another step in advance a step much in accordance with the old spirit by which the first british colonies were guided in proposing to hand over with certain restrictions the control of their own land to the colonists now this he took to be no small merit in the bill especially when he reminded the house that two years previously when they were invited to legislate for new south wales it was in vain that some members urged upon the government and upon the parliament the necessity and equity of doing the same thing the bill gave to the colonists of new zealand that right of dealing with their own lands which was refused in eighteen fifty to the more mature and powerful colony of new south wales and although the boon was clogged with objectionable conditions yet by it the right honourable gentleman showed that in principle he was willing to assent to the demand made by the colonists in regard to this weighty particular mr gladstone then proceeded to discuss a variety of details of the bill once more citing the example and authority of the united states which he described as quote, the great source of experimental instruction so far as the colonies are concerned quote. against the proposal to make the upper house or legislative council of the central parliament of new zealand a body of nominees mr gladstone entered an earnest and eloquent protest in this important particular he said the plan of the present colonial secretary differed and he must say greatly degenerated from the plan of lord grey having had the misfortune frequently to differ from that noble lord on questions of colonial policy it was with the greatest pleasure that he acknowledged the excellence of his plan in this particular respect lord grey's intention was that the legislative council should be composed of persons elected by the district legislatures it was quite plain whence he had derived that hint it was from the united states of america and in going to the constitution of the united states to draw hints and suggestions for the improvement of modern colonial institutions lord grey had resorted to the very best foundation of instruction founded upon experience if there was one thing in the constitution of the united states which more than others entitled the great authors of that astonishing work to the gratitude of their countrymen and to fame as wide and lasting as the world It was the system which they had devised for the election of the senate which proceeding on the principle of providing for the election of senators from separate states each considered as a unit and all as equal established a check on the power of mere numbers or pure popular election in practice it had been found most difficult to work the system of nominated legislative councils in the colonies and as regards political principle and opinion it was the party favourable to stability which was endeavouring to get rid of those nominated bodies and to substitute elective councils in their place the real truth was that they had here another of those vulgar superstitions which it was necessary to protest against from year to year until they became effectually and utterly exploded The superstition which induced men to believe that it was right to have a body of legislators in the colonies appointed by the crown for the purpose of checking the free action of popular sympathies if it were true that the home country had a set of interests distinct from the interests of the colony in respect to its local affairs the imperial parliament would be acting on a sound and right principle in making provision for the separate and independent maintenance of those interests but it was not so the mother country had no conceivable interest apart from those of the colonies what served their purpose best served its purpose best the notion of setting up a body of men by nomination who were to be representatives of the interests of the home country which were no interest at all was a most gross and serious error not merely one of those idle errors that lay by in the lumber-room and did no good and no harm but an error full of practical mischief and tending to keep up that intermeddling in the local concerns of the colonies which was so prolific of weakness to the mother country and of vexation to her colonial children another point to which he must refer had relation to the new zealand company an honourable member had spoken of the disinterested conduct of that company and he did not at all question that patriotic motives had governed the gentleman who formed its directorate but he must confess that for colonial purposes When companies of this nature got beyond the purely commercial business of bringing the capital of the old country into contact with the soil of the new, he looked upon them with irradicable jealousy. So long ago as the time of Adam Smith, they had acquired the ill repute of being the greatest obstacles to the well-being of colonies. They had one most unfortunate instance of this in the case of the Hudson's Bay Company, which spread a death-like shade over a large region of North America he objected altogether to the management at home of the local affairs of colonies such as they now had in view but if they were to have government from home let it be the queen's government let it be the government on that treasury bench the government they could face and interrogate with which they could argue and whose errors they could expose and condemn but as to companies of this kind which fell into the hands of irresponsible individuals into which necessarily a narrow spirit crept, and a spirit that gradually became more and more narrow, he looked upon them with the greatest jealousy, when, once they got beyond that, which he had ventured to characterise as their proper sphere. No doubt there might be exceptions, and the New Zealand Company might be one of these. He certainly did not mean to draw a comparison between it and the Hudson's Bay Company, but he maintained that too much of territorial power and of political relation had belonged to it the right honourable gentleman the secretary of state had thought fit following the traditions of his department in this particular instance that the settlers in new zealand composed of englishmen and natives as intelligent as britons at home that each one of the six districts of the colony should be governed by a superintendent who was not to be elected but who was to be nominated by the governor of new zealand and that this functionary should have provided for him by the parental care of the home government a salary of five hundred pounds per annum now he would respectfully suggest that if they could get rid of both the nomination and the salary it would be a great improvement in the bill from what source was it that political appointments derived their attractiveness and honour he had the distinction of sitting in an assembly of six hundred gentlemen who gave their laborious services to the country without fee or reward they had again in the service of the state a great multitude of salaried officers yet no man could say that these salaried officers many of them bringing distinction as well as emolument, were coveted more than a seat in the House of Commons. Why was such a seat, with the heavy burden of duties attached to it, so coveted? Because every seat in the House of Commons was a mark of the confidence of a portion of their fellow countrymen. That confidence stood instead of money, and it did the work of money better than money itself could do. If these New Zealand colonies were allowed to choose, out from among themselves, whom they believed to be the best men it would be found without undertaking to provide a salary of five hundred pounds a year that the office would become the object of honourable competition it would be in addition he ventured to predict the means of making the colony attractive in a degree far greater than at present and of drawing from england to new zealand men of a different class men of a higher class than could ever be got to go in numbers to any of the colonies until the colonies were stamped with the same broad and deep and indelible character of freedom which had been marked upon all their home institutions. Sir John Packington, the Secretary of State for the Colonies, followed Mr Gladstone in the debate and referred to the eloquence and ability of his speech, adding that he had listened to it with the greatest pleasure. At a subsequent stage, Sir John described Mr Gladstone's speech as an essay upon our colonial system." End of chapter 16. Recording by Timothy Ferguson, Gold Coast, Australia.